Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.13, Beatrice, The Last Princess. Last time, we introduced Beatrice, Victoria's youngest daughter and closeted companion. We saw how she was raised from birth in an atmosphere of grief, and the sure knowledge that it would be her destiny to serve her mother for the rest of her life. But we also saw how, as she grew into a young woman, she gained a taste of what a more normal life could look like, and perhaps grown accustomed to its face. Today, we will see her find love and get married despite the obstacles that her mother placed in her path. Now, I know in the last episode I said that this would be the last episode on Beatrice, but yet again, I underestimated the amount of interesting stuff that I would dig up. One of these days, I will really learn not to make predictions like that. They always turn out to be wrong. But before the concluding episode on Beatrice, we will be having, as the next episode... The Other Half Movie Night, where we will be watching the 1997 film Mrs. Brown. It would be super fun if you could all watch the film between now and the next episode, and then on the Facebook page, let me know what you thought. I love hearing from you guys, and it would be great to get your perspective. Now, I've been hearing from my American listeners that the film is very hard to come by across the pond, so I'm sorry about that. If you are in the US and have some tips about where you can find it, then please do get in touch. And if you really can't find it, then don't worry, I think you'll still enjoy the episode. And before we get going with this one, I want to thank my Patreon subscribers. Now, I've been negligent recently in thanking my new ones, so here's a belated shout-out to Joanna, Beck and Chris, Emma, Megan, Justine, Aletha, Carrie, Jen, Jean, Ariadna, Heather, Mai, E. Catherine, Chad, Mathilde, Erin, another Jen, and finally, Lana. If you too would like to support the show and join these amazing people, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. 
and pledge some small monthly amount. Anything you give will be much appreciated. Okay, let's get into the episode. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Victoria did not really want Beatrice to marry. She wanted her all to herself forever. She wasn't a cruel woman. She wanted her daughter to be happy. But she struggled to separate Beatrice's needs from that of her own. And equally, Beatrice herself was torn between duty and happiness. The dilemma was expressed in a letter written by Henry Ponsonby, the Queen's private secretary, to his wife, who was one of Victoria's former ladies. Quote, I think Beatrice will want a prince, though for her sake I should like an Englishman. Her want of interest, which I believe comes from fearing to care for anything which the Queen hesitates about, will become natural to her, unless a good husband stirs her up. But, poor girl, what chance has she? People around her feared that, unless she was able to spend more time with people outside the family, she would become completely inculcated from the real world and thus completely lost. They wanted Beatrice to find happiness, but Victoria seemed to operate an ignorance-is-bliss strategy. If Beatrice could never know marriage, then she could never miss it. Right? Well, we'll never know, because swinging their way into her life came the Battenbergs. And no, I'm not talking about the checkerboard cake. The Battenberg brothers were three scions of a branch of the Hessian ruling dynasty. Yep, just when you thought we were done with them, we're back to the Hessians. Now remember, Princess Alice had married Louis of Hesse, who at the time was third in line to the Grand Duchy. Well, his uncle, also called Louis, was the Grand Duke of Hesse between 1848 and 1877. His brother, Alexander, married for love. It's quite sweet, really. Julia Halker was the lower-born daughter of a Polish general and a lady-in-waiting to Alexander's sister. They were allowed to marry, but it had to be morganatic, meaning that their children would inherit none of Alexander's titles. God, I love a bit of complex noble legal classism. Okay, well, the Grand Duke of Hesse, in an attempt to give Julia some veneer of nobility, gave her the title of Princess of Battenberg. Alexander and Julia had five kids together, including three sons that would have an impact on Beatrice and her family. The eldest, Louis, first encountered Beatrice at a dance in 1880, and made quite the impression on her. He was a dashing and adventuring naval officer, and took a shine to the princess. But Victoria, seeing the quote-unquote danger, physically placed herself between the two, squashing any potential spark. The next brother was Sandro. He had been made a prince of Bulgaria by the Russian Tsar, and he too was suggested as a potential match for Beatrice. But, no, could you imagine Victoria letting her beloved, closeted daughter marry a part-German, part-Russian prince of Bulgaria? Never gonna happen. You may remember Sandro, actually, from the series on Vicky, 
as he had a long entanglement with her daughter Moretta. But, as with Battenberg's, as with Leith, third time was the charm. The eldest Battenberg brother, Louis, did eventually marry into Queen Victoria's family, wedding Alice's daughter, also called Victoria, in 1884. It's fair to say that Queen Victoria wasn't on top of her game at this wedding. Her youngest son, Leopold, had just died due to his haemophilia. Her former son-in-law, Grand Duke Louis, had just married his mistress, and her granddaughter, Ella, had announced she was marrying a Russian prince, a match of which she greatly disapproved. This all meant that she had a full schedule of being sad and disapproving to be getting on with. And that meant that she didn't have her BDI on Beatrice at the wedding. She was distracted. And this allowed Beatrice to meet the third Battenberg son, Henry, and fall in love. Now, I've been unable to turn up any account of exactly how this happened. So, we have to speculate. If you'll indulge me... I have the image of a similar situation to Anna and Frozen in my head. Of a girl, shut off from the outside world, suddenly being allowed a measure of freedom, and essentially falling head over heels with the first guy she sees. For her, maybe love was an open door. Luckily for her, Henry of Battenberg was no Prince Hans, and was a trustworthy recipient of her affections. Right there, in the midst of the marriage celebrations, they decided to marry. They weren't messing about. Beatrice did not tell her mother the news until they had returned to the UK. One imagines she desperately didn't want her journey back to be in complete silence. She was under no illusions that Victoria would take it well. She still saw Beatrice as baby, as her little angel, as her innocent flower that should be protected from sexual impulse. Victoria really had come a long way from the sexually charged newlyweds she had been all those years ago. But no matter how much Beatrice had steeled herself, she could not have imagined just how badly Victoria would take this news. The Queen was absolutely shocked that such an awful thought could ever have crossed Beatrice's mind. It wasn't that she had never considered marrying Beatrice to someone, but it had to be on her terms. The man had to be carefully vetted. Beatrice was supposed to be alien to the whole concept of marriage. How could Victoria have missed this unmitigated disaster when it happened right under her nose? Victoria responded to this in the same way that a young teenager would. She refused to talk to Beatrice. For months. Literally months. And she had the temerity to call Beatrice baby. All through those months, Beatrice was still her constant companion. They would dine together and sit together but the Queen would not utter a word to her devoted daughter. If she had something to say to her, she would... In fact, I'm going to give you an opportunity to guess what she did. Yup, you guessed right. She wrote it down on a note and then passed it to her with her eyes averted. And it went further even than that. She didn't go full Walpurga Black. She didn't start ripping her out of photographs but she completely stopped mentioning Beatrice in her letters, except when she was instructing members of her family not to talk to Beatrice. I mean, really. Her reaction seems to be motivated by equal parts shock and petulant anger. And so, it must have been an awful seven months or so for Beatrice. Imagine having to spend nearly all your time with someone, your mother no less, who refused to talk to you because you dared to fall in love. But what is telling, 
and not picked up on by the sources that I have read, is Beatrice's strength at this time. She was under a lot of pressure to give up Henry. It certainly would have made her life one heck of a lot easier at this time if she'd done it, but she wouldn't do it. She was willing to make this sacrifice for love, and you can see this as being rather foolhardy or incredibly brave, depending on your outlook. Personally, I see it as both. This all meant, of course, that Victoria needed a new confidant, and she found it in Alexandra of Denmark, the Princess of Wales. Luckily, Alexandra was a lovely person who tried to help. She tried to broker the solution to this impasse. She had been around Victoria long enough to know what buttons to press, and so she wrote a letter. And notice how carefully she tiptoes around this whole issue while still getting her point across. Quote, I must not close my letter without telling you, dearest Mama, how much I felt your again having placed so much confidence in me on a subject which I know has given you so much pain even to mention to anyone, as you have always nursed the hope of keeping your one ewe lamb completely to yourself. I can therefore well understand what a terrible shock it must have been to you when you heard she had a new interest. We must hope that it will be for the best, and that she will continue for many a long year to be the same help and comfort to you that she had always been. That, in there, was the compromise that Alexandra was trying to broker. For Beatrice to be allowed to marry, but for there to be no change in her devotion or duties to her mother. Victoria had to be persuaded that her daughter wouldn't be talked out of this marriage, and it seems that Beatrice's steadfastness and Alexandra's intervention finally did the trick. Now, this didn't just require compromise on Victoria's part. Beatrice had to accept some pretty unpalatable terms if she wanted this marriage. She and Henry would have to reside with Victoria. Unlike all her siblings, they wouldn't be allowed their own home. She had to remain as the Queen's constant companion and personal private secretary. Marriage for her would not mean freedom from this box that Victoria had built around her. But it would mean that she could tie the knot with the man she loved. Left with little other choice, Beatrice agreed. One thing that mother and daughter did agree on was that Henry was a good choice for a husband, if one accepted that Beatrice had to marry someone. Victoria wrote that she liked Henry, quote, very much, and that he was, quote, the handsomest of the three handsome Battenberg brothers. He was born in Italy, and is described as having rather Latin features, with dark hair and eyes. His brothers called him Lico, as a bastardization of Enrico, and that was the name that Victoria and Beatrice referred to him by. He was a soldier, having enlisted in the Prussian elite guards, but was willing to give all of that up to marry Beatrice and live with his mother-in-law, which was quite the sacrifice. Though, if one is cynical, one could point out that it was a pretty sweet life he was marrying into. He would be financially secure, and massively more prestigiously married than he had a right to be, but he did have to give up his freedom and aspiration to do it. To me, this can't have been just for ambition. It had to be for love. The reaction in the UK was pretty positive. Beatrice was very well thought of, the perfect image of the dutiful daughter, and the public were happy that she had found such joy. They weren't wild, though, about the man she had chosen. 
they would have preferred someone with better prospects, a sexier name. He was referred to as the German pauper, an unkind, if not entirely inaccurate, moniker. The reaction in Germany was far more negative. Vicky was, of course, delighted, but as for the rest of the court... Well, this is what Victoria wrote to her eldest daughter. Quote, I must tell you how very unamiably the Empress, and even dear Fritz, have written to me. I really think the Empress has no right to speak to me in that tone. Dear Fritz speaks of Liko as not being of the blood, a little like animals. In another letter, she said defiantly, quote, If the Queen of England thinks a person good enough for her daughter, what have other people to say? Well, that's quite the turnaround, isn't it? Beatrice was granted an annual allowance of £6,000 by Parliament. Not without some complaint, mind you. And so the Queen was able to go into full wedding planning mode. She was keen for it to be not a state occasion, so this would not be a big wedding. Indeed, she was so keen for this to be as low-key as possible that she broke with all tradition and decided to have it not in a cathedral or a palace chapel, but in the small parish church of St Mildred's at Whippingham, near Osborne on the Isle of Wight. People would be in half-state uniforms, and Beatrice would have no train or train bearers. It would be as simple as a royal wedding could be. You may notice here that Beatrice doesn't seem to have had much input. Well, that's because she didn't have any. To quote her biographer, Matthew Dennison, quote, After the unwanted breakdown of the previous summer, it must have seemed that, at last, things were returning to normal. The Queen planning and making decisions, Beatrice agreeing and falling into line. For eight months, Beatrice's happiness had hung in the balance. The Queen's bossiness was a small price to pay for the realisation of that joy. Indeed, Beatrice wrote to the splendidly named Lady Waterpark, quote, It is a great comfort to me that Mamma is now thoroughly reconciled to the thought of my marrying, and that my future husband has already endeared himself to her. Please, God, this event may brighten her life, and our one wish is to devote our lives to her. Although this would be a small wedding, far away from the public's gaze, this didn't mean that it all went completely under the radar. Commemorative medals in silver and bronze were minted, with profiles of Beatrice and Henry on one side and their coats of arms on the other. Victoria also commissioned a painting by a young artist named Caton Woodville. He was an odd choice, as he was best known for doing battle scenes, and produced a, frankly, rather awful painting. Or at least, that is the generally held view, and I can't say I disagree. I've put a link in the show notes, though, so you can see for yourself. Victoria also arranged for Alfred Lord Tennyson to write a poem for the occasion. Now, Tennyson is one of my favourite poets, but this one, well, I'll let you be the judge of it. It certainly strikes an odd tone. Two sons of love make day of human life, which else, with all its pains and griefs and deaths, were utter darkness. One, the summer dawn, that brightens through the mother's tender eyes and warms the child's awakening world. And one, the later rising sun of spousal love, which, from her household orbit, draws the child to move into other spheres. The mother weeps at that white funeral of the single life, 
Her maiden daughter's marriage and her tears are half of pleasure, half of pain. The child is happy, even in leaving her. But thou, true daughter, whose all-faithful filial eyes have seen the lowliness of earthly thrones, wilt neither quit the widowed crown, nor let this later light of love have risen in vain. But moving through the mother's home, between the two that love thee, lead a summer life, swayed by each love, and swaying to each love, like some conjectured planet in mid-heaven between two suns, and drawing down from both the light and genial warmth of double day. See what I mean? There's a lot to unpack in there, but calling Beatrice's wedding her white funeral isn't exactly what a bride wants to hear. It's a very sad poem, aimed very squarely at Victoria and her point of view, rather than that of Beatrice. Shockingly, the princess didn't like it at all. It all hit rather too close to home. Beatrice spent the lead-up to the wedding in much the same way as she'd spent her whole adult life, doing her mother's bidding. She was reportedly answering telegrams on the wedding day itself. Perhaps Victoria was trying her best to keep her busy, afraid that her mind might drift her upcoming wedding night. I've said it before, but it is remarkable how prudish Victoria had become about sex. She certainly hadn't been so as a young woman. But right now, and with regard to Beatrice in particular, she was quite vexed by it. In a letter to Vicky, she said that, quote, I often wonder any mother can bear of giving up your own child, from whom all has been so carefully kept and guarded, to a stranger to do unto her as he likes, is, to me, the most torturing thought in the world. Beatrice was inundated with gifts from around the country in the weeks leading up to the wedding. Eton College sent a locket, the Royal Institute of Painters sent her a book of drawings, the City of Liverpool gave her a wedding cake, and the people of West Cowes on the Isle of Wight sent a silver-framed mirror. These were just a sample of what she got, an indication of how much she was liked, and the number of organisations and institutions with which she was associated. Holding a royal wedding on the Isle of Wight is a very difficult thing to do. There wasn't enough space for all the guests, so royal yachts had to be converted into floating hotels. Everything had to be brought in from the mainland. It was a logistical nightmare and a massive faff. But at least the weather was good, when the big day, the 23rd of July 1885, came. Beatrice had chosen her own wedding dress, one of the few things she had been allowed to do and had opted for a simple yet exquisite gown of ivory satin trimmed with lace, with garlands and sprays of orange blossom, myrtle and heather. To finish it all off, Victoria gave her daughter her own wedding veil to wear, as a sign of her blessing. Unlike any other royal wedding that I've talked about on this podcast, this one seems the most familiar to me. It was in a parish church on a gorgeous summer's day. You had your usual assortment of friends, relations and freeloaders. You had people aching with pride, gawping at the dress and being mean about things out of bitterness. As an example of the latter, one politician described the bridesmaids as having a, quote, decided lack of beauty, so he can do one. It all sounds completely perfect. Victoria thought so too, writing in her journal, quote, A happier-looking couple could seldom be seen kneeling at the altar together. It was very touching. 
I stood very close to my dear child, who looked very sweet, pure and calm. Though I stood for the ninth time near a child, and for the fifth time near a daughter at the altar, I never felt more deeply than I did on this occasion, though full of confidence. When the blessing had been given, I tenderly embrace my darling baby. After a rather raucous-sounding garden party reception, Beatrice and Lico set off for a long weekend honeymoon at Qua Abbey, just down the road. There, for just a little while, she was able to be alone with her husband, and able to enjoy married life. She wrote to one of her sisters-in-law, quote, Lico's kindness, thoughtfulness and tenderness are intensely precious to me, and I feel so safe and content in his dear hands. God grant that I may make him as happy as he deserves, and that we may be spared to each other. We sit out nearly all day, and it does me so much good. I am thankful to say we remain till Tuesday, and we are quite content with that. It's interesting that she lands on that point at the end, because these five days were a degree of freedom that she had seldom had before she was married, and would be still rare even as a married woman. She didn't complain. She recognised her lot in life and had accepted it, and so didn't fight too hard against it. But she had fought for this wedding, fought for her man, and she had won. And it's wonderful to see her savour in her victory, while also ready for the work that was yet to come. Here ends part one. We'll be back after this. Beatrice's marriage changed everything and it changed nothing. She was still living with her mother. She was still constantly at her side, still subject to her whims and emotions, still required to temper her emotions and feelings to serve her, still shackled to her duty. One observer noted that, quote, Princess Beatrice is very quiet indeed, and seems dull and suppressed. From the constant restraint of the Queen's presence, she has lost all life and spirits. Around the Queen, everything about Beatrice was meek and unassuming. She wore demure, albeit expensive, clothes. Her chat was non-committal and stuck to safe topics. She was there, but not herself. Certainly not the self that she could have been. But this isn't the whole story. Because the Queen wasn't the only important figure in her life anymore. Now she had Lico. Finally, she could be happy. Arguably for the first time since her father had died, when she was still a very young child. And people could tell. Lico's sister remarked on how, quote, radiantly happy they looked. And she wasn't the only one to notice. In his presence... Beatrice could finally be herself. And it's no surprise that, in this period, she continued her side project of being a relatively successful author. This next one was quite different from the birthday book, though. It was a translation from German of The Adventures of Count Georg Albert of Erbach. This was the story of a 17th century devoutly religious knight who went on, well, a series of adventures. As one might expect from a book about a very pious man, it isn't exactly a rip-roarer, but it did contain some rather racy scenes. Well, kinda racy. 
Check this out. When she looked up again, the Count found that her liquid dark oriental eyes no longer had the same simple expression of kindliness, but that there now burnt a bewitching, fiery passion within them, which caused her face to be suffused a deep blush. Ooh la la! This shows that Beatrice was not the nun that Victoria thought, or perhaps wished her to be. And this was also evident in the fact that she didn't waste any time in getting pregnant. However, in December 1885, just four months after getting married, she miscarried. But by the next summer, it was clear that she was pregnant again, due to give birth almost exactly a year after she had lost her first child. It will astonish you to hear that Victoria was not at all thrilled by this. Her own painful experience of pregnancy had soured her against the whole enterprise, and she equally was far from thrilled about Beatrice having her attention distracted away from her by some newborn. Indeed, she complained about the fact that Beatrice's due date meant that she had to leave Balmoral earlier than she wanted so that she could give birth in Windsor. Perhaps her pettiest moment, though, came a week before she gave birth. Beatrice had stopped coming down to Victoria's formal dinners, preferring to eat alone in her quarters. This seems a rather sensible course of action for a heavily pregnant young woman, but Victoria was unimpressed. She wrote to her daughter's doctor, quote, I urge the princess to come to dinner, and not simply moping in her own room, which is very bad for her. In my case, I came regularly to dinner, except when I was really unwell, even when suffering a good deal, up to the last day. I, mother of nine children, must know what is right and wise, and not the young, inexperienced people who know nothing. When Beatrice did go into labour, though, it was a relatively straightforward birth. Victoria described it thusly, quote, The pains were very severe and tedious, but she was very good and brave. They feared it might go on long, but at four, thus suddenly changed to bearing pains, and at 5.10, the baby was born. Dear Liko is very happy. He was very anxious before, I think, though he did not say so. He was very helpful and was there continually, excepting when he took a little rest while I remained. She then went on to describe the baby, a son, which she did in rather unglowing terms. Quote, The baby is not big, but very vigorous and well-developed, with a big nose and very pretty small ears. I hope the eyes will be brown, but I cannot judge yet, as I have seldom seen them open. They named him Albert Alexander, though he was mostly known as Drino. Beatrice fell pregnant again soon after, and this birth was far trickier, with far more severe labour pains, and the doctor having to resort to forceps in order to get the baby out. Both mother and child were in real danger, but they both survived. This time it was a girl, whom they named Victoria Eugenie Julia Ina, though she mostly just went by Ina. And then, a year and a half later, there came baby number three, Leopold. This name was a rather bad omen, as it was the same as Beatrice's elder brother, who had died of haemophilia, and tragically, this younger Leopold was also afflicted by the condition. Finally, two years after Leopold, came the fourth and final child, a son named Maurice Victor Donald. Beatrice was not a bad mother by any means, but she wasn't really a natural one. 
In this, she was possibly influenced by her mother, who had been a very involved parent to her elder children, but whose attitudes had changed in later years, especially after Albert's death. Beatrice was attentive and loving to her brood, but she struggled to connect with them, especially as babies. Moreover, they were not her top priority. Her mother was. Their needs were mostly attended to by Lico, who was a far more natural and devoted father. Indeed, he took on many of the roles that one might have expected a Victorian mother to have done. He arranged their education, played games with them, bought them presents, and generally gave them the intimacy that they required. This was a time in which a wife was normally seen as the property of the husband, when subservience to him was seen as the natural order of things. Yet, in this marriage, Beatrice, by virtue of her duties with her mother, was of higher standing. Beatrice's marriage also inspired the queens to make things around her slightly more fun. Victoria's household had lightened a little since the dark days after Albert's death, but it was still a pretty dour place. However, after Beatrice's marriage, she revived the organisation of theatrical productions, including Tableau Vivant and Court Theatricals. The former were a sort of living art performance, where each scene depicted two people in frozen poses accompanied by music. Beatrice loved performing in these, especially as the musician, while Lico also enthusiastically took part, as, due to his rather faltering English, he struggled in court theatricals. Victoria, however, liked seeing Beatrice on the stage, as she loved how beautiful she looked in all her costumes. Over her quote-unquote career, she depicted everyone, from Elizabeth I and Boadicea to the Queen of Sheba and Queen of the Revels. Lico often took part alongside her, but she also performed with her sisters and other members of the household. As I said, Lico didn't have good enough English to take part in the plays, but Beatrice always took leading roles. This, of course, had far more to do with the Queen's wishes than any particular talent. Indeed, it appears she wasn't all that good. One of Victoria's secretaries, who took part in the performance, recalled, quote, Both Princess Louise and Beatrice were quite good in their parts, but very sketchy with the words. I, therefore, learned their parts as well as my own, so that I could either say their words or prompt them. Everyone else did the same. But there was one small bit when they were on together, and, of course, they stuck, each one thinking that it was the other's fault. After an awkward pause, the servants gave them a round of applause, which I thought was a very intelligent way of helping them. But although the prompter was able to start them again, they could not get going, and the stage carpenter solved the problem by letting the curtain down. But, painful social awkwardness aside, these dramatic performances that happen two or three times a year were not enough to make up for the dullness of Victoria's court. One of Victoria's ladies, Marie Mallet, wrote one time from Balmoral, quote, We see nothing of the Queen except at dinner on alternate days. We have no duty to perform to occupy our minds, and the weather is horribly cold and wet. At the same time, it is impossible to settle to anything on account of interruptions. We just exist from meal to meal and do our best to kill time. Beatrice, of course, saw a lot more of her mother than that but one imagines that she wasn't exactly on a thrill ride herself. 
She did manage to distract herself with playing tennis, ice skating and riding with her husband. But while this seemed to be enough for her, it wasn't for Liko. He knew what he was getting into when he married Beatrice, and he never resented her for it. But he needed more to his life than just being essentially a stay-at-home dad while his wife went to work alongside the Queen. He went hunting and shooting with male members of the household. But his main preoccupation became sailing, mainly one imagines because it enabled him to get away from the court. The Queen had given him a yacht called the Sheila, and he embarked on a number of voyages, both with and without Beatrice. Lico's sister remarked that he was, quote, happiest of all and most unfettered on board his beloved sailing yacht Sheila. His trips grow longer and longer, including a four-month trip around the Med. Victoria could not countenance letting Beatrice go for such a long time, and so she was forced to stay at home while Lico went off on his adventure. Marie Mallet remembered that, in the build-up to the voyage, quote, He is in the highest spirits, just like a boy going home for the holidays, but poor Princess Beatrice daily appears with red and swollen eyes. I am so sorry for her. She will be lonely, and the children are not much to her as yet. I'm sure she sometimes longs for liberty. When he returned, he was, according to the Queen, quote, the picture of health, very brown and with a beard. I liked him better without it. His one other diversion were two honours given to him by the Queen, that of Governor of the Isle of Wight and Honorary Colonel of the Isle of Wight Rifles. These were positions to be enjoyed rather than ones with real power, though, and he yearned for something more. His brother Louis was rising up the rank of the Royal Navy, and Lico wanted a taste of military action as well. His colonelcy of the Isle of Wight rifles enabled him to spend some time in barracks, but only in a ceremonial function. This wasn't enough. He wanted to go to war. Specifically in Ashanti. The Ashanti Empire was in what has become part of modern Ghana, and had spent most of the 19th century engaged in periodic warfare with the British and their Gold Coast colony. In 1896, war broke out again, and the British prepared an expeditionary force to force Ashanti to become a protectorate. Yes, it's more complicated than that, but it's not really relevant. What is relevant is that Liko volunteered to be the military secretary to the expeditionary force's commander. Shockingly, Victoria refused this request. I mean, of course she did. She wasn't wild about his sailing trips. She wasn't about to let him go to war in a region renowned for Europeans dropping dead from disease shortly after disembarking. But Victoria persuaded her that this was something that Lico had to do, that he, quote, smarted under his enforced inactivity. It was hoped that this would be a relatively straightforward and easy war to win, and that as a member of the general staff, Lico would be fairly safe in any case. But this was still a very difficult time for Beatrice. Marie Mallard, who as you can see is one of our chief sources for this period, wrote, quote, Poor Princess Beatrice is inconsolable, but so patient and unselfish, and declares that she is glad he should do some real work, and that she will never stop him in any sort of way. I admire her more than I can say. I've been talking to the poor princess and comforting her as best I can. Of course, he is bursting with excitement. 
This excitement did not abate after reaching the Gold Coast. And he wrote to Beatrice that, quote, The whole thing is like a dream. Now, those of you with good memories will remember that this was not the first time a boy that Beatrice liked went to war in Africa. In 1879, Prince Louis Napoleon had gone to war against the Zulus and had been killed in action. Surely this must have been in Beatrice's mind when she saw Liko for the last time before he left, and would definitely have come flooding back to her when, in mid-January 1896, she was told that he had contracted malaria. He was forced to leave the army, and was sent home on a warship bound for Madeira. Beatrice planned to meet him there, but he never made it. While preparing to leave, she received a telegram informing her that her husband had died. Victoria recorded in her diary that the first thing Beatrice said after reading this telegram was, quote, The life has gone out of me. Beatrice then went to her room, while various family members attempted to comfort her. Victoria continued, quote, I went over to Beatrice's room and sat a little while with her. She is so piteous in her misery. What have we not all lost in poor Liko, who has died to serve his country? He was our help, the bright sunshine of our home. My heart aches for my darling child. Liko's body arrived in Portsmouth on the 4th of February, aboard HMS Blenheim, and two funerals were simultaneously held. A public service in Westminster Abbey, and a military funeral at St Mildred's on the Isle of Wight the same church in which he and Beatrice had been married. It was there that he was buried, and still lies today. Beatrice took the death of her husband better than her mother had dealt with Albert's death, yet it still affected her greatly. Her elder sister Vicky, a widow too of course, wrote that, quote, Darling Beatrice is quite admirable, so patient, so resigned, so courageous and calm, but broken-hearted. She adored him. Never were two people ever happier. It wrings my heart to see my darling child's grief. Though she is very calm, she can cry quite naturally. Liko had written long letters while sick, and Beatrice received them all at once when his body arrived. She was particularly upset the fact that she couldn't have been with him in his dying days, that he was so sick, and that she wasn't able to have comforted him. And on that very sombre note we will be leaving Beatrice for this week. Remember that the next episode will be movie night, but after that, we will conclude the story of Princess Beatrice, Victoria's last daughter left standing. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.